We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Now let's turn our Bibles tonight to First Chronicles 26. First Chronicles 26, as we continue reading through Chronicles together in our evening services, these have been, uh, as you know, a pronunciation challenge sometimes, but we're working through it. So, First Chronicles 26, concerning the divisions of the gatekeepers of the Korahites, <clears throat> Meshelamiah, the son of Cori, the sons of Asaph, of the sons of Asaph, rather, and the sons of Meshelamiah were Zechariah the firstborn, Jediel the second, Zebediah the third, Jathniel the fourth, Elam the fifth, Jehohanan the sixth, Eliehonai the seventh. Moreover, the sons of Obed-Edom were Shemaiah the firstborn, Jehazabad the second, Joah the third, Sakar the fourth, Nethanel the fifth, Amiel the sixth, Issachar the seventh, Pulthai the eighth, for God blessed him. Also to Shemaiah, his son, were sons born who governed their father's houses because they were men of great ability. <clears throat> the sons of Shemaiah were Othni, Raphael, Obed, and Elzabad, whose brothers Elihu and Shemakiah were able men. All these were of the sons of Obed-Edom, they and their sons and their brethren, able men with strength for the work. 62 of Obed-Edom. And Meshelamiah had sons and brethren, 18 able men. Also Hosa of the children of Merari had sons, Shimri the first. For though he was not the firstborn, his father made him the first. Hilkiah the second, Tebaliah the third, Zechariah the fourth. All the sons and brethren of Hosa were 13. Among these were the divisions of the gatekeepers, among the chief men having duties just like their brethren to serve in the house of the Lord. And they cast lots for each gate, the small as well as the great, according to their father's house. The lot for the east gate fell to Shelemiah. Then they cast lots for his son, Zechariah, a wise counselor, and his lot came out for the north gate, to Obed-Edom, the south gate, and to his sons, the storehouse. To Shuhim and Hosa, the lot came out for the west gate, with the Shalaketh gate in the ascending, uh, on the ascending highway, watchmen opposite watchmen. On the east were six Levites, on the north four each day, and on the south four uh, each day, and for the storehouse two by two. <clears throat> As for the parbar on the west, there were four on the highway and two at the parbar. These were the divisions of the gatekeepers among the sons of Korah and among the sons of Merari. Of the Levites, Ahijah was over the treasuries of the house of God and over the treasuries of the dedicated things. The sons of Laadan, the descendants of the Gershonites of Laadan, heads of their father's houses of Laadan, the Gershonite, Jehieli, sons of Jehieli, Zethem and Joel, his brother, were over the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Of the Amramites, the, 
the Izharites, the Hebronites, and the Uzzielites. Shabul, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, was overseer of the treasuries, and his brethren by Eleazar were Rehabiah his son, Jeshiah his son, Joram his son, Zikri his son, and Shalometh his son. This Shalometh and his brethren were over all the treasuries of the dedicated things which King David and the heads of the father's houses, the captains over thousands and hundreds, and the captains of the army had dedicated. Some of the spoils won in battles they dedicated to maintain the house of the Lord. And all that Samuel the seer, Saul the son of Kish, Abner the son of Ner, and Joab the son of Zeruiah had dedicated, every dedicated thing was under the hand of Shalometh and his brethren. Of the Isharites, <clears throat> Chenaniah and his sons performed duties as officials and judges over Israel outside Jerusalem. Of the Hebronites, Hashabiah and his brethren, 1,700 able men, had the oversight of Israel on the west side of the Jordan for all the business of the Lord and in the service of the king. Among the Hebronites, Jerijah was head of the Hebronites according to his genealogy of the fathers. In the 40th year of the reign of David, they were sought, and they were found, and there were found among them capable men at Jazer of Gilead. And his brethren were 2,700 able men, heads of fathers' houses, whom King David made officials over the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, for every matter pertaining to God and the affairs of the king. May God bless the reading of his word tonight. We're going to turn the rest of the time over to uh, Dr. Mark Snowberger, and so we welcome you to come, and uh, we look forward to the message. We got a little preview of the outline, and that outline, for those of you online, is on the uh, computer on the fbcaa.org slash docs, that's D-O-C-S, uh, page, and it's just a short outline, so not a whole printed thing for you, but you'll see it there, and hopefully that will help you follow the message tonight. Brother, thank you. Well, thank you, Pastor Postiff. It's uh, good to be here. Uh, circumstances aren't uh, perhaps ideal, but it's a, it's a good thing. Actually, I get a chance at a dry run at this sermon. I was, uh, I was asked to preach on prayer for a prayer week over in, uh, in uh, Huron Baptist next Sunday. And I told Pastor, I've got a ready-made sermon if you, if you don't have time this week. And he said, oh, well, we'll give you a dry run at this. So don't, don't tell anybody that I preach this here. <laughs> Turn, if you would, to Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Mark Snowberger. I teach at uh, Detroit Baptist Seminary Systematic Theology Department. I am better known here as John's dad and David's grandpa. So uh, that's, uh, that's who I am. My wife, Heather, is here with me. Lord's Prayer has had a long and really a beautiful tradition in the liturgy of the Christian church. Many assemblies uh, recite it routinely, sometimes weekly, to the delight of some and to the chagrin of others. Now, those who frown at the reciting of this prayer usually do so because of abuses uh, that have taken place throughout history. Most especially, uh, we have the prescription of the Paternoster which is Latin for Our Father, and the Hail Mary, the Ave Maria, uh, as incantations that are assigned as works of penance to earn forgiveness in the Roman Catholic tradition. And so some, some really uh, 
frown on the reciting of this prayer because of that abuse. And perhaps with good reason right here in the context, right? Uh, uh, Jesus has just uh, gone over a, 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 his concern about repetitious prayers that are empty. And that has to count for something here. Uh, um, others also point uh, to, the, uh, to the fact that the instructions that are given here tell us not what to pray, but in what manner to pray. And so uh, the precise contents are not to be repeated over and again. Uh, but there are others who are much more favorable to reciting the prayer in the gathered assembly, and there's some good reasons for that. And they, Of course, firstly, they respond that there are two solutions to the problem of, of, of vain repetitions. Uh, one is to not have any repetitions, and then the other is to make sure that we're not doing vain repetitions. Um, we also note that it's impossible really to divorce the how from the what we pray in the, in the introduction to this prayer. I think part of what's going on here is to tell us how to pray. The method, in fact, if you have the outline in front of you, I, I actually say here there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a protocol for, for approaching our Father. Um, but there, there's also, I think, representative content for prayers that are supposed to be uh, prayed routinely as well. So I don't know that that that, that uh, it's it's actually wrong to recite this prayer. I think sometimes we we go astray in what we pray for, um, and perhaps the best thing we could do is just repeat this occasionally at least. Um, and certainly we don't want to uh, to to discourage the recitation of scriptures and of prayers uh, in, in the life of the church. I think familiarity with this prayer is of great worth. Um, it, it, it's, it's one of those prayers that's like the Psalms in that it gives us something to say when we have nothing to say. As we sometimes say that about the Psalms, and so you know, why, that's why we encourage familiarity with the Psalms and encourage the memorization of the Psalms, because in those times of deep distress and difficulty, uh, and when when it's difficult to even form the words to pray to God, God's actually provided sometimes these these kinds of prayers, and to memorize them, I think, is a is a is certainly a a, a wholesome thing to do. But I've already digressed a bit from our goal of exegeting the Lord's Prayer. So uh, let's continue. I've chosen the Matthew account of the Lord's Prayer, uh, mostly because it is longer, more complete, perhaps not as long as we might think. Uh, there is a there is a, a textual variant that we're going to have to talk about at the end of uh, verse 13. Uh, but uh, it is the longer, it is the longer of the uh, prayers. Uh, there's also a, a, a similar prayer in the book of Luke. There's been a lot of discussion as to which prayer was the original one, who borrowed from whom. Uh, the fact of the matter is, if you look at the context of both of these prayers, they happen at quite different times in the ministry of our Lord. This one takes place here in Matthew, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, very early in the ministry of Jesus Christ, while he's still selecting his disciples, uh, where the one in Luke actually takes place right about the midpoint of Christ's public ministry just before the unpardonable sin incident. And so rather than falling into discussions as to which one was first and which one is original, I think we should probably conclude that Christ taught often on how to pray 
And so uh, stressing then the importance of the exercise we have in front of us tonight. Uh, again, some preliminaries here. Uh, the fact that it falls in the Sermon on the Mount actually creates some familiar questions about application as well. Um, as you, I'm sure, are probably aware, there are different traditions on how to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. Some, it, 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 since it, it falls right on that hinge, right, between the Old and New Testaments. Uh, and so some look at this and say, okay, that's a prayer for Old Testament saints. It really doesn't apply to us. Others say, no, this is a prayer for New Testament saints. This is a, this is a sort of an introduction into, an introduction into New Testament praying. Others suggest that, no, this is actually a prayer very narrowly for the people who live during the, during the presentation of the kingdom and perhaps those who are living in the kingdom in the millennial period. Um, and there's, so there's quite a bit of doubt, uh, debate as to uh, how we should apply it. My personal take here is that this is rather a transcendent, transcendent bit of instruction that's generally, uh, generally applicable to believers in every age. And most people in the church have treated it that way. Still, we can't ignore the original context. Uh, there are some elements of New Testament prayer that aren't here because they just haven't been introduced yet. So there's no prayer for the in, uh, unity of the Christian church or the spread of the Christian gospel. doesn't mean that those are inappropriate to pray for. These are just things that haven't been introduced yet. There's also elements of prayer such as praise and gratitude that don't make an appearance here either. Uh, the, pr- the, the prayer seems to be generally directed towards how to make petitions. Okay, so don't think of it as a comprehensive prayer that covers everything we need to pray for. Yet it is, I think, a prayer that has in no way become outdated. The concerns that Christ has here in this prayer have not appreciably changed uh, in the present day. So the Lord's prayer, if we can put it this way, is the church's prayer. It's our prayer. So what can we learn from the content that we should routinely include in our petitions. And what are the sentiments that should attend them? In what manner should we pray? Well, let's look at the prayer to discover this. We are looking at verse 9 here and reading through verse 13. And and I'm going to be reading out of the New King James Version, but I think I'm going to probably revert to King James language pretty pretty regularly on this one because as as it is for many of you very familiar to me in that translation in this manner christ says therefore pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And let me add for now the disputed ending, more on that later, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The prayer begins here with the believer's appropriate redress of God. Our Father, who art in heaven, whose name is hallowed. The sentence does as much to orient the one praying as it does to identify the one to whom we are praying. The idea of addressing God as Father brings many pictures to mind, as many perhaps as there are people in the room. 
because we've all had fathers, right? Now, some of you may have had affectionate fathers. Some of you have had aloof fathers, some kindly, some more austere. Maybe you had a deadbeat father. Or perhaps you never knew your father because of death or abandonment. And that is going to color the way you think of that word, father. But Christ is not so negligent as to allow us to construct a God of our own choosing. He explains the picture we're supposed to construct. God is our Father, firstly, in heaven, and secondly, one whose reputation for holiness must be tenaciously upheld. I believe that the location that is chosen here and the selection of this particular attribute, his holiness, work together to color the way we are supposed to approach our Father in heaven. The fact that he is in heaven, of course, does not suggest that he is, he is restricted to heaven. God is everywhere present in the whole of his being, which is to say he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's as much in the decorative plant over there uh, on, the, uh, on the piano there as he is in heaven. So why do we use our Father in heaven? Well, because we know from Isaiah 6, the book of Revelation, and other places that this place, heaven, is where God manifests himself most spectacularly. And also, we might add, it's not here. It's somewhere else. Christ is drawing formal attention, I think, to the creator-creature distinction. God is not the same as us. He is not like we are. He is wholly other than us, better than us, higher than we. He's not even bound by space and time. He's our Father in heaven. Reminding ourselves of this fact is extremely important to situating the requests that we make of him. The fact that God chooses his holiness as the attribute attribute most needful for orienting our prayers is similarly, I think, significant. The holiness of God, we know, can be captured broadly in the fact of God's otherness. Now, we tend to think of this term, holy, as primarily in terms of moral otherness. And this, of course, is a major emphasis in Scripture. God is ethically pure. He is separate from evil. And so our requests to him certainly need to be pure in content and motivation. But I'm not sure that that's the point that's being emphasized here. The term holiness also points to God's ontological otherness. That is the otherness of his being. And the idea here is that he is majestically transcendent. He's different from us. He's greater than us in every possible way. He's the sovereign of the universe, and that's the emphasis that we have here in Matthew chapter 6. And so we put these two observations, the location, this attribute, together with Christ's choice of really a formal name for fatherhood, father, And these suggest that we probably don't have in view here a casual request like, Daddy, may I have a lollipop? Okay, nothing wrong with asking Daddy for a lollipop. But I'm not sure that that's the the, the idea that's to be uh, communicated by the word Father here. Now, of course, this can be overplayed. Uh, 
The book of Hebrews does speak of our absolute confidence in prayer. We do find a more informal cry of Abba, Father, elsewhere in Scripture. But let's face it, if we're going to make a list of the errors of evangelicalism, excessive formalism isn't on it, right? So if we can, if you can indulge me just for a while, I think the point here is that we are pointed to the fact that we are here on earth. We are finite. God is up in heaven. He is great. He is other. He is transcendent. He is sovereign. He is holy. And that is how the prayer begins. And so this is the first part of Christ's appeal to that question teaches how, how we should pray. Attention, then, to the transcendence of God leads naturally to the next element that's in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I believe these requests are to be paired together, something like this. May your kingdom come, and with it, the enjoyment of absolute moral rectitude on earth that is presently enjoyed only in heaven. So make earth like heaven with the arrival of the kingdom. We sang of that tonight, right? The day when we will crown him king of kings. And that's the anticipation. That's the expectation. And, and it's part of our routine prayer. Come quickly. May your kingdom come. And there's an intense longing here for this day when all things are made right. When every person on the planet will acknowledge God for whom he is. When every tongue in heaven on earth and under the earth shall admit with one accord that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. John closes his canon with these words, even so, come quickly. And our spines both tingle and shudder at the same time as we think of that day. This emphasis is perhaps a curious one for those of us who imagine that the centerpiece of God's universe is the salvation of people or that the principal end of God's providential ordering of his universe is the establishment of eternal bliss for people. This verse informs us and perhaps reforms our expectations of what God has in mind when he speaks of the restoration of all things. In view here is not only the personal redemption of God's elect, but also the proper subjugation of those who have rebelled against him, against his royal sovereignty, and have sought to overthrow it. We forget that at the consummation, there will be almost certainly more people who are crushed by God than are welcomed into his heaven. And we're going to all applaud this reality, one and all, as something eminently righteous and good. And this is the sentiment that envelops this prayer. A little word here about that last line in the prayer. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It appears in some translations and uh, in, in the uh, King James and in the New King James. Many modern translations do not include it because it probably is not in the original this fact is troubling to some um, because, you know, it, it does make us a little bit unnerved that there may be clauses and sentences scattered here and there in the Bible that represent later additions to the biblical record that were innocuously accepted by the early church. But, and it's ever a debate as for preachers as to what to do with it, you know. Um, 
Part of me says we should just ignore this line because it's probably not original. At the same time, it's there right in front of you in black and white or perhaps red and white, depending on what Bible you have, right? And, and, and it's a very familiar passage, so it's, it's hard for me just to ignore it. I think what we have here, um, even though it's not original probably, uh, an ancient tradition, an oral tradition that perhaps can even be traced to Christ, and most certainly they are this, a reflection of the assessment by the early church as to what this prayer is about. And by returning to the theme of God's kingdom and power and glory, we have a commentary on this prayer that suggests the early church saw this as the primary emphasis and focus of the prayer. The kingdom is coming. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For this reason, we ask you these things, and they wrap, they wrap it up with, because you're the king. Because thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so this prayer is conceived, as all of our prayers should be, to, use, to borrow from Paul's words in Ephesians 1, it's written with a view to the administration of the fullness of times, the summing up of all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ. And so the prayer here centers on the universal righteous acknowledgement of Christ as king. Not so much on our happy embrace of the gospel. And by saying that, I don't mean to suppress the idea of the embrace of the gospel. But I think we err when we limit our prayers for the kingdom to those happy aspirations that attend personal redemption. The kingdom isn't about us and what we get. The kingdom is about who is on the throne. And so God's agenda is bigger than ours. And so this request, thy kingdom come, is a hopeful one, but a dreadfully hopeful one. These facts, then, that God is majestically transcendent, morally pure, and sovereign, color the rest of the prayer. And I think now we appear that the rest appears as three clusters of requests, petitions, that are quite familiar in most prayer meetings. I think that's a good thing. But as we look at, look at them, I think we need to bear in mind, and we probably need to keep in mind, when we have prayer meetings together, that these prayers are only, they only make best sense when they are seen in the context of the bigger picture of what God is doing. We make these requests with humble optimism because he's transcendent and righteous and sovereign. And if we can keep these things central in our prayers, I believe this will greatly energize the petitions that we bring to him. The first is an appeal for divine providence. Give us this day our daily bread. If we know that God is the potentate of the universe, this should cultivate in us upon whom his favor rests. Not a hopeless dread, but a confidence that God is able to meet the needs of his people and that in his righteous benevolence he most surely will do so. And this he does in that marvelously intricate network of ideas, purposes, activities, and thoughts that sometimes is called providence, or if I may, providence, because the emphasis here is on the providing impulse of God. 
And there is a complex of means and ends that together contribute, contribute to this best possible world, whether or not we see it as such. And so we are praying for God in his providence to work out the best possible ends. And ironically, one of the elements of this providential network are our prayers themselves. We pray because prayer is a necessary component of the outworking of God's comprehensive plan to accomplish all of his purposes. Now, the specific request here is for daily bread or the food that we need to survive the day. The request needs perhaps a little bit of contextualizing because I think we probably all have a little bit of difficulty praying for our daily bread when the next week's worth of bread is already in the cabinet or in the refrigerator. The urgency isn't there. Uh, now, that's not true of the first century world. It's not true of much of the modern world, the majority world today. Literal application can be immediately made. But it doesn't mean that the wealthy Westerner can just ignore this request. It's likely that this request for bread is metaphorical for all of the material needs necessary for one's continued existence. Interesting word here. It's for the essence, epiousia, for the essence. Everything we need for our essence, we're praying for here. It includes not only food and coverings with which we are to be content, but also that is all that is necessary for health and safety and as we are all well aware, these are kinds of things that routinely elude even the most self-sufficient and wealthy of us, right? You know, we, 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 we fall prey to this bug that's going around. And, and so we pray because we are at its mercy. Uh, but we find that we are actually at God's mercy, right? Because he is the one who determines what happens. Attention is drawn here to our vulnerability and also to the fact that God is righteously omnipotent and wise. He knows what is most needful and most necessary for our continued existence, for our existence within his universal ordering of all things. And so we pray earnestly and confidently, knowing that he can and will give us everything that is in our best interests and his. And I think we need to rem re remember this because we tend to become somewhat short-sighted when we pray, right? We pray, for instance, for Aunt Betty to recover from COVID and for the kids to get home safely from Florida and for Jim to get work so he doesn't lose his apartment. And there's nothing wrong with praying for these things, right? But keep in mind that all of these requests are made within a providential network of facts and events that include all things, and God is aware of all of them. It's important to remember this because if Aunt Betty doesn't get better, and one day she won't, right? You know, someday that request that you know someone you're praying for will remain healthy and, and, and would stay in life, is going to be answered in the negative because we're all appointed to die. And after this, the judgment. We shouldn't think in such a case that God has failed us. He simply responded differently than we expected 
because he's working out a comprehensive, sovereign plan that ends way better than any of us can imagine. And he's working out his comprehensive, sovereign plan in such a way that we just don't get because of our finiteness. And that's a bracing thought, I'd suggest, and one that can go a long way to sustaining us when the grief of loss and unrealized hope overwhelms us. And it will. He's doing something for us that is far better than we ask or think. And that's because we're praying to our Father, who is in heaven. The one whose divine vantage renders him aware of what is best. One whose divine power renders him able to do what is best. And the one whose divine affections toward us render him ever inclined to give us what is best. And so when his answers perhaps seem to us to be a little off, we can trust that they aren't. Because he's our father in our heaven. And in the kingdom of his might, lo, all is just and all is right. The next prayer, the next pair of requests deal with interpersonal relationships. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Well, the term here for debts is a generic one. It could refer to financial obligations. That's how we tend to use it, I think. Uh, but uh, it's probably, you know, there may be implications here for, for financial dealings, but I don't think that's the point. Uh, really what we have here is a reference to moral obligations that we have towards each other. Uh, Luke confirms this by con- using the, a term that clearly denotes moral obligations. And so the request is principally for the grace necessary to forgive as evidence of the fact that we have been forgiven. There's actually two requests here, one that we would forgive and the other that we might be forgiven. But what's particularly interesting is the ordering and the relationship of these two requests. You're all familiar with Ephesians 4.32. It's one of those passages that everybody memorizes somewhere along the line. We are to be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God forgave us. But this is, this is exactly the opposite, right? We are requesting here for God to forgive us as we have forgiven others. This ordering is confirmed, I think, in verses 14 and 15, which we didn't read. Because if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Now, Christ is not saying, of course, that we need to forgive one another in order to earn God's forgiveness of our sins. This runs contrary to the whole biblical teaching of justification. But before you breathe that sigh of relief and resume hating your brother, recognize that this line does mean something, and something rather serious, right? What's Jesus' point? Well, namely this. If you are persistently and steadfastly unwilling to forgive others, especially when that forgiveness is sought by them, then God has not forgiven you because true faith always and necessarily results in a willingness to forgive. This warning is very intense, but it's 
not unprecedented, right, in the New Testament. We have multiple passages that teach something similar. John tells us, for instance, that if we don't love our brothers, the love of the Father is not in us. John also announces that if we persist in unconfessed sin, we haven't been born of God. James warns us that if we have no works, then we have no faith. And Matthew here tells us that if we don't forgive, we haven't been forgiven. And that's really just a sampling. There's, there's more passages in the New Testament that we could cite. And the point here is that all of these responses, loving our brothers, confessing our sins, engaging in good deeds, forgiving one another, these responses are necessary of regeneration. Now notice the way I said that. They're not necessary to regeneration. That is, it's not as though you have to do all of these things in order to earn regeneration. But once regeneration has occurred, these responses are necessary responses of one who has been born of God. And we're persistently warned that those who fail to cultivate these kinds of responses will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what we have here, in a nutshell, is the doctrine of perseverance. And so what is this prayer request that we find in Matthew 6? Well, it's that I would demonstrate the fruits of faith so that, in the words of Peter, my calling and election are made sure, and that in this way there will be richly provided for me an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the sum in summary, Lord, since you are the king and your kingdom is coming, please fit me for the kingdom by making me a person who is eager to forgive. The last pair of requests developed uh, this last concern even further. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This particular line from the Lord's Prayer made national headlines about two and a half years ago, if you were following the news on, on May 1st, 2019. The Pope, Pope Francis, announced in a general audience, that this clause of the Lord's Prayer needed to be revised. He noted that God never tempts anyone to sin, and cites James 1.13, and then argued that this request in the Lord's Prayer is not merely unnecessary, but potentially blasphemous, suggesting, and I quote him here, that God is lurking with hidden pitfalls and snares for his children. And so instead, Pope Francis argued we should pray, let us not fall into temptation. I trust you're scandalized by the shameless gall of the Pope in correcting Scripture. But he's right to recognize that there is an apparent conflict here, right? Why is it that we have to pray that God will not lead us into, trans into temptation if we know already that he doesn't tempt anyone to sin? Well, there's several possibilities, some better than others. Some suggest that the concern is not so much temptation as it is the uh, tribulation or terrible violence that will take place at the end of the age. There's a lot of problems with that. Uh, again, we're, we're promised that we will not endure this wrath. Um, and the term here that, that is translated temptation simply doesn't mean tribulation or eschatological wrath. Uh, the fact is uh, that it is temptation that is in view. Others observe, more credibly, that while the term tempt can refer to the wicked attempt by some to cause another to sin, it can also refer to a test, a crucible, 
that may result in sin, but if successfully resisted, will actually cause us to grow in sanctification. good example of this usage is when Christ is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Same word choice, incidentally, that we find here. Apparently, Pope Francis missed this one. It's possible, then, that the request is that we not receive tests from God. But I'm not sure that that works either, because the tests are designed here for us to grow in our sanctification. We actually do want tests from God so that we might advance in holiness. What we have instead here is more likely that we are to pray for God to be merciful and measured when in his sovereign oversight of all things, he grants permission to Satan to tempt us, and we face this temptation, we will be able to triumph over it. This this understanding, I think, preserves the emphasis on God's oversight of all things, even the temptation to sin. Remember back in Job? Job uh, Satan wants to tempt Job, and what does he have to do? God, can I please tempt Job? Okay. And he comes back later. It didn't work. Can I tempt him more? And God says, okay. And we are draw- our attention is drawn to the fact that Satan is nothing. <laughs> he has to grovel before God to ask permission within God's providential order even to do anything. Okay, And so when we talk about God leading us into, into, into temptation, we should have that picture. Okay, What does God permit and allow into this life? And the prayer here is that we will not be tempted above that which we are able. So in summary, uh, Jesus is saying, pray, pray this way, Sovereign Father, regulate the temptations that enter into my life so that I might not fall, but rather grow in Christ and thus prepare myself for the kingdom that is to come. And so we bring this message to its summary conclusion, and I think we find here a prayer, a model prayer, that centers on the sovereign rule of God and our preparation for the kingdom that's coming. And while we know that the preparation for the kingdom includes the urgent announcement that those who are outside these walls are in danger, the king is coming, repent, we also need reminders that the great preponderance of instruction in the New Testament and the great preparation for the kingdom occurs within the walls of the church here, within the community of faith, as we prepare collectively to be the bride having neither spot nor wrinkle arrayed in the beauty of holiness, adorned for the king. And to this end we pray, as our Lord taught us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, we couldn't really tell it was a dry run. Very well done. Thank you. God bless you for bringing us that message today. We've come to the end of the day of ministry uh, for the church uh, meetings anyway. I'm glad that you're able to participate and uh, 
come and join us today. Thank you for coming, making extra effort to come out tonight. And um, those of you online as well, thank you for joining us. How many did we have, Jansen? How many units? Thirteen families, all right, and individuals participating. I invited somebody from Florida to participate who doesn't have a, a place to be this evening, and uh, hopefully they're on. Hello if you are. You know who you are, and uh, glad that you could join in. <clears throat> Let's pray. Again, Father, we are grateful for what we've heard tonight, and may it inform and educate and guide our prayers and how we think about your program, not just about ourselves, <clears throat> but about what you're doing in the grand scheme of things. And indeed, we look forward to that day when the kingdom does arrive, and we may see it unfold before our very eyes. We gratefully look forward to it and with great longing. In the meanwhile, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful in our preparations as citizens of that coming kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Good night, everybody. <clears throat> Have a good week and stay well. Uh, hope you don't catch what we have had. And pray for uh, our family, if you wouldn't mind, and uh, several others who are not well uh, in the church. Ryan uh, is one of them who is in the midst of it right now. And uh, Naomi is not feeling at all too well this afternoon. So I want to remember her, if you would, please. And um, I think our boys are doing fairly well. Uh, who else? I think most of the rest of us are on the mend. So that's a good thing. And I'm glad that the Lorches are back and back in action after having not been here for quite a few weeks. So Lord bless you folks. Good night, all. Have a good week. <clears throat>